0: Uh, Since I'm going to be talking about entrepreneurship, I'd love to get a read on the audience. Uh, How many of you want to be an entrepreneur? How many of you want to start your own company? How many of you want to drop out to do it? What do we got? We got two? Okay, between the two of you, who's going to be really excited if you do that? You're going to be really excited. Who else is going to be really excited?
1: Your parents, really negatively.
0: Your parents, very negatively. Very negatively. Which is, the, uh, the story is, actually, I am not a graduate. Although I am here for my 15th year reunion. And I did learn that you can be an alumni without being a graduate. Because I actually dropped out uh, my senior year to start Trilogy. And it was actually five of us uh, from Stanford Two of us dropped out, three actually were able to do both the studying and the work at the same time and get their degrees. Um, and uh, actually, the other one, uh, John Lynch, who was the other guy who dropped out, uh, was back talking. He was a symbolic systems major. He was talking uh, a few years back, probably in 97, uh, to Symbolic Systems Forum. And at the end of it, he had a little, um, I don't know, we'll call it a little aside, where he explained how ridiculous it was that the symbolic systems department didn't take, I think it was like math 104 at the time, or was it was a matrix theory, or something like that, and how he had taken this other class that was equivalent, and they should just give him the degree. And he got a call the next day from the head of the symbolic systems department who said, uh, I was in that talk, and uh, you're actually right, and we'll give you a degree. <laughs> so, so now, unfortunately, I am the only one without a degree, and I can let you know that. When you do this, if you do this, nobody will support you. Your parents will not like it. They will think it's a bad thing. My mother, to this day, sends me a Stanford watch every Christmas
1: <laughs>
0: and says, I'm going to send them every year until you graduate. And I remember and Trilogy, uh, when we first started doing well, and I remember like the first time we were on the cover of Forbes magazine, I sent the magazine to her. And I'm like, Mom, like, isn't this enough? And she is like, no, Joe. There's only one thing, and it's a degree. And when she knew I was going back for my reunion, she's like, well, maybe you want to register. So, but anyway, what I am actually here is I am an unabashed entrepreneur. I actually think, and I have a really, really clear objective. And when Mike asked me to come talk, I thought this is great. I talked at ETL uh, in the past. But now I have one really clear message and clear uh, objective today. I'm going to try to convince as many of you to drop out and start your own companies. That entrepreneurship, and as you look at it, if, you, if I was here in the late 90s and talking about this, lots of people would probably be doing it. And with the dot-com boom, that was a thing. But it, dropping out's been a, a great thing for a long time. But entrepreneurship, whether you drop out or not, is something that you need to do in your career. It's an experience of starting your own company, and uh, a work intensity, a, you know, a, a time that is both the best and the worst of your life. right? You will go from the highest highs to the lowest lows, sometimes in a matter of minutes. Um, and it is something that you guys got to do. I also would recommend you do it now, because it's the least risk time. right? When you're an undergraduate, are most of you guys undergraduates? Most are. Uh, when you're an undergraduate getting out, you don't have a whole lot to lose. I know you think you do. And I know you think that cr- first job you got to get is really critical and you got to get going, right? And either you have to pay off loans or whatever it is. But I'm telling you, now is the time. I was just at uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, they do a case study on us. And so I go up there each year to talk. And they had an entrepreneurial forum. And I sat down with them and said, how many of you guys want to drop out? MBAs, not really the risk-seeking type, none of them did it. And I said, but if you could go back and be an undergraduate, then they're all like, ah, if I just knew now. If i just known then what I know now. Now is the time to do it. Um, I thought I'd give you a little color about how we started, some of the good, some of the bad, about uh, being an entrepreneur and try to give you a flavor for it. But at the end of it, I really want to, I hope I do my job and convince you it's a great thing. we were uh, we started and we believed that we could build this product called a configurator, which, um, well, at least back in 89, uh, when we were just about to start building it, we thought was the coolest, latest, greatest thing in the world. People had been trying to build configurators in, uh, since the mid-70s. Uh, AI and expert systems back then were a big deal. People had tried to build them and hadn't built a good one. Uh, in the 80s, I was coming to uh, late 80s, coming to classes, and IE 271, and you had to write a business plan. So I was learning, oh, this is a good thing to do. I was taking expert system classes from uh, Ed Feigenbaum and reading about, oh, all these different things. Uh, I was going to talks like this, right? And we had um, Bill Joy from Sun had come. Um, Steve Jobs came and gave a talk about what he was doing with This brand new computer at the time called Next. And this is getting dating me. Most of you won't know, Objective-C and object-oriented programming was brand new back then. And we thought we could buy a Next machine, build a configuration engine, do it during our senior year. So then, when we graduated, boom, we'd have jobs. And this configurator would be done, and everything would be great. So we started coding up, and it was five of us we all started coding all summer, started into the fall quarter. I actually was a student, fall quarter, and uh, the only class I ended up passing that core winter quarter um, uh, was uh, a class that had 100 percent take-home final. open book. Uh, it was actually about women in education. I still remember that because I <laughs> It was a three-hour take home, and I learned everything and wrote everything I could know down as quickly as possible. Um, But I passed that class, but realized to get to the June goal so that we would have the product done, I was not going to be able to keep going to class. Um, John and I stopped going to class, and we just coded all day and all night. Um, Now, one of the things about this, and a little just piece of advice, um, because this is where you can learn from my mistakes, I'm not sure what I was thinking at the time, but when I did this, I forgot to tell my parents.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, I just, I thought, I don't know what I was thinking, because how they're going to, they're going to find out someday. And uh, so I forgot to tell them. I ended up not telling them till uh, spring quarter, when they're like, okay, Joe, how's, uh, we got bigger plans for graduation. <laughs> oh, that's a really important thing to talk about, Mom. Yeah, anyway, uh, I dropped out. <laughs> and I'm working on this really great thing. This is an awesome <laughs> idea. This is like going to be, this product that we're building is going to be just, it is going to just beat, it's going to be world beating. It's going to be awesome. And, you know, the, uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> there is just no amount of enthusiasm that gets them excited about that idea. And, uh, but what was done was done, uh, and I wasn't going to change. So summer came, and we we're going to build this in a year. And how many of you guys actually are CS? Is there any program that ever has been designed in your head that could take more than a year to write? We didn't have it. We thought a year—you can build anything in a year. A year is plenty of time. So a year comes and goes. We're not done. We thought, hey, our friends, like after they graduate, they're—you know—a lot of them were like going to Europe and, you know, getting ready before they started their job. And so we said, okay, well, we'll just finish during the summer. Right? We'll just finish during the summer. And then once we're done in the summer, then it'll be like starting our job in the fall. And we viewed that we were only three months away. Because you know, once you hit your year deadline, you've know, you got to be like, really close. So we're, we're about three months away. We uh, coded through the summer. Uh, this is where having friends, very important. You talk about building networks at Stanford, critical important Because you're going to have to have a place to live. Because you lose student
1: housing,
0: right? And so, literally, uh, John was, you know, his friends had rented his house, and he's like, give me the garage. I'll give you 50 bucks a month. You know, this would be a great place to live. Um, And you can learn to bum off your friends who have uh, housing. And um, uh, so we did that. Then uh, fall came, and we weren't done yet. And now we're starting to get a little nervous. And you're thinking, I wonder what, I wonder what we should do. So we thought, well, let's go raise some venture capital. And at the time, we thought thought the reason Sand Hill Road down the street was there was for budding entrepreneurs like us. So we went and started talking to some venture capitalists. And they, uh, you know, you go to the first one, and they said, well, uh, okay, well, you know, one of the great first rules of venture capital is – We'd love to back an experienced management team. So, guys, tell us about your experience. I looked at, you know, John. And I was like, well, did you uh, manage the food club? <laughs> right? You were part of the sweets, didn't you? Have to do like... Anyway, he's like, no, no, I didn't. So, unfortunately, we did not pass the experienced management team test. Right? And so we went back. And we're like, okay, well, we need a, good, a better pitch. We need to learn more about this. You know, luckily there's a lot of VCs, so we can practice this. Um, and back then, this is back before you have PowerPoints and everything. You have to, like, make all your own slides and have a projector and stuff. So we put a slide in there that we're like, wow, we don't have an experienced management team, right? Because we had learned in one of our classes and presentations at Stanford that you've got to handle those objections right away, right? First slide, get it out there so we can move on. And... The like guy's like, yeah, well, but one of the things we often do is we back experienced technical teams, right? Experienced technical teams, you know, if you guys are just hotshot technical people, then yeah, we'll do it. Because at the time, um, Sybase had been funded to build a database engine. It was the ex-Brit and Lee guys, um, and they were just world experts in building databases. They're like, so like Sybase. And um, they're like, so have you ever built a configuration engine before? And we're like, no, no one has. No one's ever built one. This is revolutionary. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, Bell Labs has been working on one for five years, and they've had a team of PhDs on it, and they make no progress. (laughs) Okay, well, at the time, um, uh, 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 Nils Nilsson was in the CS department, and uh, they said, why no Nils? I could just go ask him. I was like, oh, oh, that's really not going to be good, because... You know, we've been talking to some of the people in the CS department, and they, they don't like the way we're going about this. He's like, oh, okay, so no one's ever built one before. Bell Labs is having trouble doing it, and the CS department doesn't think your way will work.
1: We're like, well, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> He's like, good luck, good luck. <laughs> so we go back, and we're like, okay, we need to do this. This is the last time. This is when you, like, look in the Stanford directory for the VCs who are Stanford alum. Because you're like, i got to work the Stanford Connection here because this is the only way I'm going to ever get this. So we went back for the third time, and uh, then they explained, uh, well, if you want to uh, do that, we actually do fund companies who don't have a management team and have this crazy technology. We actually—they're usually like these hit game companies, like if you're building a video game or something like that. We would—we'd be interested in backing possibly for that. Or at the time, there was this company called Berkeley Systems, which uh, this is definitely dating a lot of you. Uh, they had a screensaver called After Dark, right? And it was a little flying toaster that would fly around, right? And It was this hit product, and everybody had to have these flying toasters, right? And they're like, "So, talk to us about what your solution is. Is it like that?" But uh, you know, one thing that we would obviously never back is this untried group of kids who are trying to sell enterprise software to Fortune 500 companies, right? <laughs> I mean, that's just not that, that's just not going to work. And this is when you're sitting there, and you actually back then have the slide things that you're projecting, and you know what the next slide is. The next slide says, "Not only are we selling Fortune enterprise software to the Fortune 500, but we will set a new high-end price point." And yeah, do you, how many of you guys advanced the slide, or do you just give it up then and walk out, right? So anyway, that didn't work either. Uh, we actually did advance the slide and got laughed and. Um, so, uh, you know, but remember, we're only a year into this, so we still have enthusiasm. We're not thinking that, you know, these these are not setbacks, right? These are just you know, uh, learning opportunities. So we then go back and we're like, but we need some money. We we definitely need some money. And so, how are we can get some? And uh, that is when you realize being a senior at a university. Uh, is a great thing, because at the time, in the late um, 80s, early 90s, was a new innovation called pre-approved credit cards. Dear graduate, you need credit. And we were getting stacks of them at the time. And so we thought, there we go. So we applied for credit cards. Lots of them. (laughs) And we funded the company by getting a credit card. Oh, we got a $5,000 limit. Look at that. Wow, we can take $4,000 of it as a cash advance. That's awesome. Oh, I got to make those monthly payments. Hey, let me just get another credit card. (laughs) Pull out that cash advance, make those monthly payments. And at the time, back then, um, uh, their sophistication of credit scoring and all that stuff, much less. I don't think you could do what we did now. But um, we actually had 30 credit cards. Um, and we're pyramiding them the whole way where we need more money, get more credit cards. And one of the things you notice, like on the credit card form, it says, uh, how many other credit cards you have, right? Well, there'd only be one square.
1: <laughs> and
0: so I'd be like, well, let's see, I have 17, one, oh, no room for the seven. <laughs> And uh, so we just piled on the debt and just kept funding this baby. And uh, we kept coding. Now, uh, we're supposed to be done soon here, right? So we go, and it's another three months, right? And another three months, and it is not working, right? And it's not that our idea is not working, it's just we thought you had to do this much, and we'd do this much. And then we'd realize oh, to solve the problem, you need to do this much. Oh, and solve the problem this much. And so it was this constantly rolling, evolving spec, growing spec, um, as we learned more and more about the things we had to do to solve the problem. And now you start getting into as as this is going, and you're trying to get it to work. You're just running more and more. Um, what little support you had is going is waning. Now you have other founders' parents calling you up. Right? I mean. What is going on? And you know, every time I talk to John, he says we're going to be done in three months, and he's been saying that now for two years, and da da da. And you're like, oh no, no, we are we are three months away. He is right. And you know, those Bell Lab guys—they never solved it. And uh, so we 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 kept doing that. Uh, and at a certain point, actually, your parents, you know, uh, aren't going to be the most supportive when you do it. But actually, some of your friends will be. They're like, that's such a great idea, Joe. I'm glad you're doing it. No, no, I don't want to join. No, 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 Joe, no, good luck. Um, but uh, after you do this a couple of years and you've been telling them you're almost done and you never really finish or you're not done yet, even your friends start to say, you know, Joe, maybe you don't know what the hell you're doing. <laughs> you know, and going back and finishing classes, it's, you know, not bad to get a degree. And But you are undeterred and you continue to forge ahead. And uh, so then you get your big break. Right? And this is where you get the good parts. We can talk about all the bad parts. Let's get to the good part. Um, at the time, Silicon Graphics uh, was the hot up and coming company. They're the innovative ones, uh, graphics uh, workstations. So we had an opportunity to demo to them, to sell them. We're like, you guys got to understand we're three months away. And we are three months away, so it is not done yet, but we will be very soon. Very soon. And uh, so, uh, Betty Watson calls us and says, yeah, I hear from the Grapevine that from the Stanford Connections you guys are working on Configurator and we need one. So we go in and talk with her about it, but we're not done yet, let us know. Well, uh, she's like, great, come back when it's done. A couple weeks later, she calls and says, on a Friday, and says we have an executive committee meeting Monday because we had a big configuration error. And it's cost the company millions of dollars. We got to have them. So we're like, uh, we're not done yet. We're three months, not three days. And she's like, look, this is your shot. You got to make it happen. I'm like, as long as everybody knows this demo, great. We stay up the entire weekend, right? We are coding. We are hard coding everything in there. We're like stealing their logo, right, and digitizing and putting it on so we had a little twirly little thing all going. We're like, we are ready. This is it. Make a break. We go into the meeting. We um, we all, uh, we had a Hyundai that some of us shared, and uh, so we pile into it and head over. Uh, actually, along the way, when you talk about being scrappy, um, we had to stop by Computerware, which was the big Mac store then, and we had decided to use Macs instead of Nex, because Nex were too expensive to buy, and so we we're going to have to build this whole thing on Macs, because we got the student discount, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but uh, computerware. We go in and we look around and we'd be like, oh, okay." None of the sales reps that we know are here. This is great. And we go back and we get the Radius Rocket, which at the time was an accelerator card for the Mac that made it five times faster. And so we we buy it. And the reason we had to make sure that um, none of the sales reps are around because we'll be returning it right after this demo, <laughs> right? And you can only do this so many times. And because um, you can't afford it. I mean, these Radius Rockets are like three thousand um, bucks. That's like a whole credit card. Um, (laughs) And uh, so we go, pile in, do the demo. And we used to do demos. How to do demos? Um, Part of our problem was, when we started, our system was um, comprehensive, but not fast, is a nice way to put it. Which is, it would solve very complicated problems, and it took forever. And so you'd say, I want to configure a big SGI computer system, and you'd click go. the little Mac head would spin, little dial would spin and spin and spin and spin, and it would take, you know, five, ten minutes to come up with an answer, um, which of time was leading edge, and, you know, because no one else came up with an answer. So on this demo, what we do is uh, you'd sit over here, and so and they'd put the little Mac unit down here and the monitor up here, and Tom would sit there with his foot right there on the power cord, uh, right at the edge. And then I would go stand over here. And when they hit go, I would then start telling the story about the history and all these kind of things and all this research. And the reason was is because Tom would be watching the screen, right, and watching it go around, because uh, I don't know, about 60% of the time it would crash. And right when that would happen, Tom would go, oh, oh, I just hit the power cord. <laughs> oh, and it just. <laughs> I, you busy executives, we cannot waste any more time. We'll show your team later on how it all works. But it, it was going to work. And meanwhile, I'm over here making sure they got to look at me. Look at me. And uh, so for this demo, we told them, you guys got to understand. And uh, one of the guys on the team uh, had been from HP, and he's like, look, I've heard some of these config stories. I'm never. I'm totally skeptical. You know, like, I'm not willing to see a demo. I actually want to put in real values. And we look over at Betty Watson, like, huh? And she's like, <laughs> <laughs> and it is like, oh, oh well. So now we're back to the bad part. So um, uh, he comes up, puts in some real values, and clicks go, and I'm over here, and this is like the longest five minutes of my life. Because I'm trying to tell him the story and how we're building this configuration, five guys in the garage, blah, blah. And, um, you know, but you know it's going to crash, right? You can put in real values. <laughs> it, it, uh, it's terrible. Um, the gall. So we, uh, it spins and it spins and it spins. And all of a sudden, Tom's like, it worked!
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm
0: like, whoop! I mean, <laughs> of course it worked. Of course it worked. It works every time. And it actually completed the answer. The skeptical guy had come up and he look at it and was like, "Holy cow! This is like the right answer." And like, there's six billion permutations like that it could go through. There's like four that don't cause it to crash, right? And it hit one of those four. And so one of those things that you always talk about, like how much luck matters. Like when you're doing your startup and you, you it is so much better to be lucky than right. Like this was a perfect example. We expected it to crash. We expect this whole meeting to go terrible. And we were super lucky. And it came out, and they're all like, oh, look at this. What? You guys have a working figure. That's amazing. And uh, so we uh, uh, are like, this is the highs of the high. Like, it doesn't get better. You've been working on this forever, right? It works. <laughs> like, you're just you're like, holy cow, that never happened. And you're just like, this is awesome. They're going to buy it, right? We're going to charge you $100,000. Right. We're like, we are set. This is it. And uh, then uh, one of the guys on the team stood up. He's like, oh. He's like you know, uh, I didn't, I mean, this meeting got put together at the last minute. And, you know, Joe, uh, you know, I, I hate to do this, but um, uh, I didn't know until you were telling the story, you know, that you guys are five guys in a garage, you know, and doing that. And, you know, every order that SGI does, which at times over a billion dollars, would have to go through the system. And uh, we, we really can't trust it to five guys in a garage. And he's like, uh, there's a partner from Anderson at the time at Accenture now. Anderson, he's like, is there like a real software company that we could buy this from, you know, one? And, you're, and he's like, but you know, SGI was recently a startup, so you know, we're really into the startup stuff. So good luck. And you know, if you get some more customers and get some more pro- progress, come talk to us. And you know, now you're at the lows of the low, right? And you were, it took like 30 seconds because that third rule of venture capital, don't try to sell enterprise software because they don't want to buy it from, you, came true. And uh, so we left and returned our Radius rocket and we're like, well, this is, uh, let's call it a day because uh, if SGI's not gonna buy it, no one's gonna buy it, right, we were gonna sell it to the HBs and IBMs and ATTs. If the innovative, coolest, most innovative company won't do it, we have no shot anywhere else. And uh, so we all got together, and we're like, should we shut this down and be done? And oh, well, this didn't work too well. Um, so um, uh, we went out for a couple drinks, maybe a couple too many. Um, but uh, this is where there's a little known fact that you guys probably don't study in finance, but Should be taught in all entrepreneurial classes. Is there's this peculiar quirk in the US bankruptcy law (laughs) that when you go bankrupt, it's binary. Right? You're bankrupt, you're not bankrupt. Right? Credit rings destroyed for seven years and you you file and you have to work through it. But how much you how much money you're in debt when you go bankrupt is relatively irrelevant. And so we're sitting on, you know, half a million dollars of debt, pyramid credit cards, right? It's going to be a fiasco. We're going bankrupt. And we're like, how about we just get some more credit cards? (laughs) So we got some more. And we just decided that SGI was stupid. And we are going to power through, and we are going to make this work. So we just got more debt we kept going. And um, a month later, we got a call from SGI, who's like, "Ooh, we looked at all these other options, and you know what? There aren't any. And you're the only choice, so looks like we need to be your customer. And we're like, that is awesome. <laughs> the price has tripled, (laughs) which is a corollary to the rule of enterprise, Fortune 500 don't want to buy from startups, that's true, that is a true, absolute rule, but if you are the only one who have it and they want it, the corollary is they're price insensitive, because they're only buying it from you because they have no other choice, absolutely no other choice, so they actually accepted, and we got $300,000, and we are like, holy, Holy cow. So we're learning our pricing, like, real time here. Three months later, we got a call from HP. And we're trying to figure out how much to charge them. We're like, what's the biggest number we can think of? Because <laughs> they're only, I mean, they, they're Right? Boom. $3 million. Ten times as much. Right? Boom. They give it to us. AT&T calls. Six months later, we're like, huh? Hold on. Ooh, crazy? Seven and a half million. <laughs> AT&T gives us seven and a half million dollars. IBM calls. We're like, I, I don't know. I'm like doing research in pre-Google, right? You're doing research. What's the biggest enterprise software dollars ever? So uh, in 1994, IBM wrote us a check for $25 million. And at that time, we actually became the most expensive, biggest enterprise software deal done to date and prove that the corollary, they really were price insensitive. Um, And then the other part that really does happen when this happens is your credit rating is awesome (laughs) because you pay off all the credit cards. And uh, so uh, we then, after we actually built the product and sort of rolling back, it really was one of build it and they will come. We kept working on it. This whole story from when we started till we shipped and got the first check um, from SGI was about three years. The product probably worked in a little under four. Um, uh, It did eventually work. Um, uh, Some of those first releases to uh, SGI and HP were a little rough. got a call once from HP, and they're like, okay, well, so we double-clicked on it, and it crashed.
1: <laughs>
0: and at the time, the guy, uh, Ed Shield, uh, had a great sense of humor. Because um, at the time, you always argue when you're with a big customer, you're always arguing over whether it's a bug or a feature. Well, that's a feature request. You know? And so it crashed, he's like, so, is that a feature request? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and uh, We eventually made it through, uh, shipped the product, ended up selling it to most of the major telecommunication companies, computer companies, um, and uh, sold big enterprise software deals. And uh, that was sort of the, that for us was the early 90s. And um, it was awesome. And when you look back at the times, even when they were bad and you're about to quit and times are terrible, the the things we learned, the stresses you go through, the opportunities you have are ones that even today, and Trilogy does really well now, you still, though, look back fondly and those days. And you want to relive them. You want to do them over. And if you haven't done them, you got to try them. So with that, I'd love to open it up to questions. I think I talked a little bit longer than I'm supposed to. Uh, but we'd love to open it up.
1: talk a
0: little bit more about what a configuration engine is. Oh, what does it do? Yeah, it's probably too. Um, configuration engines uh, are incredibly boring. Um, our first PR agency quit over it because they're like, this is incredibly boring. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, what, what they actually do is uh, if you're selling any complex parts, if you're selling a big phone switch or a big network of computers or whatever, there's lots of pieces that go together. If you think of the simplest one on a PC, there's a certain number of cards you can put in, a certain amount of memory. Um, it's a combinatorial explosion problem. And being able to correctly configure, because all possibilities aren't accurate, is actually a very hard problem, technically, but it's also a very valuable problem. So like the SGI problem that I mentioned, what happens is they had bid, you know, we're going to sell you an SGI system for $3 million, right, and it's going to have uh, three at a time, You know, 300 megabytes of RAM memory, which back then was the whole. And the sales rep sold it because the customer was asking it and they signed the contract. They then realized that the way they had to put, like, extra cabinets in and have a backplane extender that they had then. And all of a sudden, what they thought was going to cost them, you know, uh, a million dollars, and they were going to make three million for it, all of a sudden cost them three million dollars just to build it because they had to throw in all the spare parts for free. Um, so what our software does is it actually makes sure that whatever you're buying is accurate. Um, Boeing's a customer of ours. And like when they misconfigure a plane, I was walking down the factory with, with the president of Boeing. Uh, he's like, yeah, you see that plane there? We punched that for 122 seats. And, uh, yeah, the customer wants, it, wants a, the 100-seat 100, 100 configuration. He's like, it's a, it's a million bucks for us to go fix that. And your software's got to stop those problems. And so, it's actually a way to think about it is it's a. It was the first um, uh, object-based uh, backtracking search engine was what we had built back in 1990. Today, you know, our configurator can do what used to take us 10 or 15 minutes in about two seconds, um, and technology has advanced very far beyond where we started.
1: down pull the fog or keep going at it? Is it just you
0: know? Yeah. Or is it, how do you kind of balance that? Yeah. Um, this is where it all comes down, and this is the entrepreneurial one, which is, you know, when you start your entrepreneurial activity, whatever spreadsheet you're doing, and whatever math and logic you're using, there is going to be a cell that doesn't fill. <laughs> it doesn't add up, where you have to take the leap of faith because you believe you're going to change the contents of that cell to something different. Because if it stays where it is, it's not going to work. And my belief is, and working with lots of entrepreneurial companies over the years, is it really is your belief that's going to get you through. And as long as you believe in it, and as long as you can persevere, you should. You're going to make it. You're going to break, hit that breakthrough. And it always takes you longer than you thought. It's never as simple and easy as you want. Right. But you just gotta stay at it. Perseverance is one, I don't know how many you know, stories you read. Perseverance is almost always top of the list, right? I stayed at it longer than anybody else. And um, this is where it's all personal, this is where it is being the entrepreneur, this is where being an MBA who puts a spreadsheet together doesn't work. This is because you love what you're doing and you're passionate about it. And even though I'm dismissing it, sort of going over it very quickly, I could tell you more about configurators for six hours. Right? I spent more time you know in the math CS library doing research about every configurator ever built and I- interviewing teams and everything about it right our whole team could are, knew this inside and out and we ended up liking it right it was a very combinatorial search problem and while um, sounding boring was technically challenging for us so we loved it and so if you are one and the, the related thing to that is if you're starting a business make sure you're passionate about it you gotta love it. It can't just be a good idea that you're indifferent about because then you will bail. Right? You're like, oh, I don't really care about this. It's that you have to realize that when everybody around you is like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard, and like 14 times now you failed, what's gonna make you wanna do number 15? Right? And number 15, it's because you wanna do it, right? You wanna drive it.
1: Uh, do you remember how did you get passionate about Configurator?
0: How did it happen? How did you yeah. run into it? How did it happen? For, it really was. There's actually, um, uh, I was in, uh, I don't remember the number, but expert systems class in the CS class that Ed Feigenbaum taught. And he had a book, and it was a book on expert systems. And back then, the, people, the way people thought they were going to solve it was with expert systems. And you'd read through these problems, and it would all talk about how they tried to build, solve this configuration problem. And Navistar trucks, I remember, tractors being a big one, a big chapter of the book. And how hard it was and how all these people were trying to solve the problem. And, but then they never worked. Or they'd work for a day and then they'd break. And I was just like, we could totally do this. How hard can this problem be? Right? And it was one of these like, um, you, know, I, you know, you say I can't do it? I, let me show you. Let me show you. And then you started doing research on it. then you start working on it. And then you're actually like, wow, this is a really hard problem. Right? And then, then it sort of becomes this big challenge of whether you can ever do it or not. And um, I just, and I don't know how I got sucked into it, but it started with a class and then doing the research. And the, the, the part about it for us that was really important that really helped was every article written since 1975 on Configurators was no one's ever been able to solve them, but they're worth like $300 million each if you ever build it. You know? Digital equipment, and Carnegie Mellon had done a ton of research in them, and Digital had funded it, and there was all these things where, if you can solve it, it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, because it just causes huge problems in the manufacturing of uh, electrical components or heavy heavy equipment. And uh, so it was always like, wow, it's worth a ton if we just finish it, um, so. Why do you,
1: sorry, why did you say that you have to drop out of Undergrad. Like, why can't you just finish it and
0: then do it? Sure. So this is actually a question I'm asked every time. And dropping out, what is dropping out? Does dropping out help? No, it doesn't help. I mean, it doesn't help from the sense of, oh, I didn't get smarter. Um, although, even looking back, I'm sure that Spanish class I, I missed. I'm, I'm okay. Um, uh, but the, it's more important as the indication of the passion and the interest. Which is, this is one where one of the things about building a team, when you talk about building a team, here's one element, right, which is, yeah, I have this awesome idea. Do you want to join my team? Well, but first I gotta get my degree, and then I'm gonna go graduate and work two years at a consulting firm, and then I'll probably go get my MBA for two years, and then once I have all that down, then I'll be ready to start. Okay, you can join that guy, or you can join the guy. Who's like, this is the greatest idea of the world, we're we'll starting tomorrow, I'm dropping out. Which which guy are you gonna follow? Right? You're gonna, guide, you're gonna follow the guy with passion who believes in his idea so much that he's willing to risk something, right? Willing to put something that people value at risk because he wants to go make it happen or her. And so it's just it's more an indication of that. And you can always go back. Right, Stanford. I don't know. They kept my degree open for ten years. Like I could have gone back anytime in ten years. Then after ten years, they actually like, because I was uh, fuzzy. I was an econ major. I was fuzzy econ, which I don't think they offer anymore. And so like I'd have to start over now. But for ten years, I could have gone back. Could you tell us more about what Trilogy does now versus what they did ten years ago with Enterprise Software? Sure. Um, so what do we do today? So we did great during the '90s. Made a ton of money. Wrote. People were writing us 25 30 $40, 50000000 million checks. Um, and we were selling software like crazy. And we prided ourselves on having the best engines. And we expanded from configuration to price and commission, all these just esoteric, very hard to do engines uh, that companies would pay us a lot of money for. In 2000, we had a couple big meetings or a couple big insights where we decided, wow, maybe we need to change. Um, uh, one of them was with um, uh, Steve Ward. He now runs Lenovo, the PC vendor. At the time, I think he was CIO of IBM or something, one of our big customers. And he came in, and he's like, Joe, you know, we've given you guys a lot of money over the years. And you know, it reminds me of this health club I joined, Joe. What? He's like, well, I go to this health club. I joined a year ago. And I walk in. And it has all the most awesome equipment I've ever seen. Like, it's got the cool stair stepper thing, and all this gadgetry. And like you know, they hook you up and do all this stuff. And I know that in this health club, there is the top of the line equipment, best products on the market. He's like, but it's a year later, and I'm not in better shape. And I didn't join the health club for the equipment. I joined it to lose weight. And that's sort of like with you guys. I know your stuff's the best on the market. We buy it like crazy. But we're not getting the business value we want. I was like, oh, okay, hmm. Well, you know, we sign the contract, and if you don't like it, you can return the software. And it's, I mean, it works according to spec. So, second discussion. Um, uh, Jack Welch, GE was a customer. Jack Welch came in and said, uh, "We'll call it mentoring." Most of the people in the room would call it being yelled at. Um, where he's explaining to me that GE Med is not getting an ROI on their software. And I'm trying to explain to him that this product just won e-commerce product of the year. And I don't understand why he's yelling at me, because it's obviously his team's problem, because we have the greatest product in the world. (laughs) And we build the greatest products in the world. And he explained to me he doesn't care if it's a product of the century, comes down from heaven above. If GE does not get an ROI, the product sucks, I suck, Trilogy sucks.
1: (laughs) So you're like,
0: okay, well. So you're on the flight back there, and you're like, well, i got to make this guy happy. This is important. Probably one not to burn, like back to the relationship. Don't burn one like that. Um, <laughs> it, it's hard being an entrepreneur. Have these big, hard thoughts, and so I fly back and I'm writing down on the pad of paper everything we're going to do so that G, so that GE can get a return. And first of all, I'm like, I wonder how they're going to get the business value. I don't even know how to use their software. right? And all this stuff, and we write it down. So we go re-engage with GE. We work with them to get them business value, uh, and do the same thing at IBM, right? With and talk to Steve Ward, and, uh, and I guess not to leave that hanging uh, before I jump is, in Jack's last annual report that he wrote for GE before he quit was, we've saved about a billion eight through digitization, and one of the companies I want to thank is Trilogy. And so we had obviously been able to switch it, and once again being you know that Stanford education coming through, I was like you know I bet all our customers would like. And we realized that we wanted to move from just being selling products for tons of money, where customers don't get any value, to actually guaranteeing business value to our customers. So we started in 2000 where we create what we now call technology-powered business services, which is a long way of saying we guarantee the value. So um, uh, when you engage with Trilogy today, what you actually do is sign a contract that says, Trilogy will deliver to me $100 million of business value, business value as measured by their CFO. They get to decide. Then after they get that value, they then give us back some of it. Because technology can unleash huge business value. Most of the time it doesn't. A lot of the tech downturn was because the, the products didn't deliver the value. But when it actually does provide the value, you get it. So for example, we'll give you some examples today. We actually set the price of every Goodyear tire. We watch, we do, we create demand forecasts and demand curves down to a zip code level, and we know whether that tire should be $50 or $52. And if they're charging $50 for it, and it should be $52, we tell them to change the price, they get the $2, they'll throw us 20 cents or whatever the contract says. Um, Actually, in in Goodyear's case, if you look at the back of Fortune magazine, Uh, The CEO's like, I installed Trilogy, and six months later, I got $35 million. And then they pay us part of that. We do the same thing in automotive, where we watch you on the web. And if you actually go to an OEM's website, one of the big auto manufacturers, we do it for most of them. uh, If you stay on that website for three minutes or more, we can identify you as a buyer or not. If you are a buyer, we then start watching what you want. Because most of the time, you start shopping eight weeks before eight to 12 weeks before you actually buy a car. We watch what you are, and then we just make sure that Ford builds it so that when you go to the dealer, it's there for you. And our predictive ability is dramatically better than what the OEMs can do on their own. And actually having a car that you want on a dealer's lot is worth approximately approximately $1,000 more per, um, you're willing to pay $1,000 more for that car for one exactly you want, rather than one that's close, but it's not the color and all these other things. Um, If one that's close, they end up having to start to give you free accessories and options that you don't want, um, but it helps you get, get into the white one when you want the red one. And then they have to spend all this money getting it there. And how we calculate it is we calculate their order. So they go through and calculate, this is the order we're about to send to the factory. We then look at it and say, oh, you're about, to send, you're about to do 20% of your armadas with leather. Consumer demand, from watching people on the web, it's actually 70%. And so why don't you build 70% um, with leather? That will make you $2,000 extra per car. That delta we get paid on uh, after we deliver. Those kind of things. And so we create these big services now where um, the only way you have an ongoing relationship with us uh, is if you're getting the value. And every six months, they get together, sign off on this get, and they pay us uh, various amounts. So. It's a it's step beyond. If you're an automaker, it's a step beyond Google's pay-per-click, where their big innovation, which is awesome, is don't just pay broadcast advertising, only pay for people come to your website. We take it, we're focused on verticals. In the verticals we're in, we take it a step further which is we only get paid if the guy actually buys a car. right? And so instead of the Google, you get $5 a click, the automakers go into our website, and they say, I'll pay $2,500 for every pickup truck buyer that you can sell or find.
1: with employees and
0: if they don't share your passion or if it, it gets harder the more your company expands? Yeah. Um, stress. Um, <laughs> relative to what it used to be, it's cake. Um, my, my job is incredibly easy versus when you're doing the startup. It is as hard. I, there is nothing harder than the startup stages of a company. right? Every bad decision you make, you might go out of business. Right today, I make bad decisions all day long, and we don't go to business. <laughs> um, and so it's not you, you. absolutely don't have constant stress. Um, uh, you know, you're going to go bankrupt. Like right? the world's falling apart when you're a startup, right? You're creating something out of nothing. Once you have a base that you're running, things I find a lot easier. Um, uh, but what it is hard. There are hard things. One of the big things that we decided. Um, is we actually used to be a huge recruiter on Stanford campus and a lot of others for CS majors. And in 2000, our college recruiting team made their first trip to India. And they came back and said, we should start recruiting all at the IITs because it's dramatically cheaper and their test scores are scoring higher than what we're getting here. And so we made the decision actually that we moved the center of our development from Austin, Texas to Bangalore, India. And uh, we actually now do most of our development in Bangalore, uh, Ukraine, and Hangzhou, China. And so when you talk about stress and tough decisions, right, we built this company over for 10 years. um, I'm best friends with all the developers and hired most of them and all that. And you stand up and say, you know, guys, we've decided the world's changing and that as we look at it, we're not going to be about just building the best products Right? We're going to start to talk about customer success. And we're only going to get paid on business value that the customer has. And so the skill sets that we need to have are going to be completely different. And it's not going to be about, can we write the most lines of C++ and Java code like it's been the last 10 years? Now we actually have to learn about our customers and their business and how it works. And some of you aren't going to like this. right? And some of you are going to want to leave over it. And some of you want to be retrained and learn this. But some won't. right? And that standing up in front of the company and having that discussion, right, sucks, right? That's not fun because you realize you do know that some people aren't going to like it and they're not going to be here, right? And some of your best friends, right, are like, I'm sorry, I don't like this idea, I don't like this vision, I want to build great software. Right? We instituted a bonus program in 2000 that said we will ask our customers every six months. It says, Do you get business value? Yes or no, and If the answer is no, no one on the team gets a bonus. Right? Yeah, exactly. That sucks. Um, But it was great for our business. It was great for our customers. And you had to decide whether you really were a board, that I really want to deliver customer value, or I want to be the engineer who just builds great products. Right? Did you, you, when Jack Welch told you, I don't care that it's product of the year. That doesn't matter. I didn't get value. You have to decide, which is, no, it's product of the year. I did my job. I'm awesome. Or, eh, I'm not done yet. I need to go make sure GE gets value. Right? And so we have fewer employees today in Austin than we did in 2000, as we've been moving and changing. And those kind of things, as you get bigger, there's two different parts, and I'm not here actually to pitch you guys that running a company is the best thing in the world. I'm absolutely not here pitching that, because I, I do not believe that. I believe for most people... That would be no fun. I believe that I don't have as much fun in my job today as I did as a startup. I'm here to pitch that doing the startup is the awesome part. But, you know, some people are made run 400 to run Fortune 500 companies, and Jack Welch seems to have a good, good time doing it, but doing the startup is much better. One more? Okay?
1: If, if you are a student today and yeah. you had to do a startup, what kinds of areas
0: would you do? That <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, wouldn't, uh, I definitely wouldn't do a software startup. Right? I was with uh, the dean of engineering in Bangalore two years ago, and we were talking about it. And he was like, you know, no offense to Joe, but I hope the startup's coming out of Stanford. I mean, 15 years ago, maybe a st- software one. But that was good 15 years ago. You know, he's, you know, he was like, I need something at the intersection of technology and medicine right, or nanotech or biotech or one of the other more advanced areas. And you guys are the leading edge. You don't know this until you leave here, right? You don't really know it until you leave here. But you guys are all on the leading edge on what you're learning and knowing and working on. And that's the part you should go exploit. If there's an area that you are studying and you start to love it, go figure out how to commercialize it and start a company. That is, that is the thing that Stanford is better than any company in the world. And I now go around the world to all these uh, uh, you know, schools around the world, and there is nothing like you have it here at Stanford, right? It wasn't. I mean, I, you know, they don't, they don't at the IITs in Bangalore. They may be doing great, and we have a great office there. Uh, they don't have the Googles or the Yahoos or the Suns or the talks like this, where you have entrepreneurs who come in and say, "Just do it," right? When I gave my talk, when I was there with the dean of Stanford, I was like, "Guys, wait till your kids start dropping out of school, then you'll know you're entrepreneurial." Right? Like there was an uproar, and like we got kicked off stage. <laughs>
1: so um, that's,
0: what, that's what you got to do. You are in a great environment. The couple years of your life, when you look back, and you're 50 years old, and you're looking back on your life, you want to say, even if it doesn't work, and you waste it. It's not a waste. It'll be one of the fondest memories you have as you look back, whether it succeeded or whether it failed.
1: Thank
0: you, Joe. Great. Thank you.